Amen. Amen. I like that song, Fran. That's a, that's a good one. The, uh, we continue in our study in the, the book of Ruth. And I always feel like saying, when I say that sentence, I feel like saying the gospel of Ruth. Uh, I know it's not considered a gospel, but we know that the gospel is embedded inside it because what it reveals to us is, is how our God loves us and how he has extended his kindness to us. We're, uh, we're in our third, uh, third sermon on this book. And so I invite you to, to turn with me in your Bibles to, to Ruth. Remember, there's only three pages in, in my Bible, I don't know how many pages it is in yours, two or three or four maybe, not very many pages in a thousand page book, but we're spending six weeks on this book because this is a story that's, that's significant. There, there's some ordinary people, but they do extraordinary things and God wants to reveal himself to us as we, as we study this text. Now we remember, to kind of get us caught up to where we are in the stories, we begin chapter two today. We remember that uh, we are living in the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was a difficult time for the nation of Israel. Because, you see, they had been doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, four or five times in the book of Judges it says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't walking in obedience to God's law. They weren't trusting in the covenant. And they weren't following Jesus, uh, the, the eternal God, faithfully. And so what that led to is that they were intermarrying with the people of, of different cultures and they were uh, falling, in, falling into worship of their gods. They had become very much like the culture that surrounded them. They weren't a distinct people. They weren't holy as God had called them to be holy. And so what would happen was then they would feel this enslavement occurring in their life and they would cry out. They would say, God, please help us. Please free us. Give us joy. Give us the, the knowledge of who you are again. We'll follow you. We'll trust you. We'll be obedient to you. And so then God would rise up a judge uh, in, their, in, their, in their time. And that would conquer their enemies for a period of time. But then they would fall back into disobedience again. And the, and the spiral continued to fall downward and downward and downward. And they got worse and worse and worse. And so in this time and place, when we hear about the story of Ruth, that's what's going on in the nation of Israel. And so Elimelech and his wife Naomi go from the land of promise, the land of Judah, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey where, there, honey, where there happens to be a famine, they go to Moab. And Moab, remember, is a group of people who are despised because they're the product of an incestual relationship. And even in the Bible it says that there's not going to be any Ammonite or Moabite in the council of the Lord for all eternity. And yet Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, is acting in a way that means his God is not king. And he goes to the land of Moab. And there he allows his sons to marry two Moabite women. And while they're there in Moab, Elimelech and Mahlon and Kilion all die, leaving Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah. And last week we talked about how Naomi was telling her daughters-in-law to go back to your gods, go back to your families. I'm going to go back to the land of Judah because I've heard that the Lord visited his people. And Ruth, in this great demonstration of kindness, this covenant loyalty, this covenant faithfulness, she rejects her own family, she rejects her own gods, because she somehow believes, even though Naomi's witness has not been very faithful, she sees that the Lord of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the true God. And, he, and she makes this awesome and powerful sacrificial gift of herself to care for Naomi, her mother-in-law, uh, a, a widow who would be vulnerable. And, and Ruth overcomes great obstacles because she recognizes that she's going to be rejected in this people. Uh, the chances for her to be married are very slim because she is a Moabite living in Israel now. And yet she sacrifices herself and she gives herself to her mother-in-law. And so there we pick up on this story. Will you pray with me before I begin? Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would speak to us now through your holy scriptures. 
that God, even as we find ourselves as ordinary people, that as we listen in on this story about ordinary people, that we would find ourselves in the story. But more importantly, Lord, we would find You in the story. We would see what You're about, what You care for, how You are working in the midst of everyday life and struggle. Help us to see, Lord, what You're teaching us today. Give us ears to hear so that we might respond to be citizens of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. There was a man named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a significant scholar and theologian and church leader in Germany in the 1930s. And and Bonhoeffer was very critical from the very beginning of Adolf Hitler's uh, rise to power. When most of the German church was being co-opted and and taken over essentially by the German government, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of his followers spoke out, they wrote out, they stood up for their faith, for the true Christian faith. Dieter Bonhoeffer had come to America to be a professor and a a teacher, but sensing a a, a strong call to return to Germany, even though his friends in America, some of them said, look, you can still do the same things in America and speak out against Hitler. From here, don't go back. But he felt called to go back to his people. Even when most of the people, even in the church, weren't standing up to Hitler in his ideas, Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. And it cost him his life. He was executed in prison 23 days before the Germans surrendered. He was a man of standing. He was a man of character. He was a man in that moment, in that time, that was willing to take a stand for what was right. He was very much like the next character we're introduced in the story of Ruth. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who is this young woman? Here we are introduced to Boaz. Uh, In my translation it says, A worthy man. You might have a, a man of standing, or a wealthy, or a prominent man. What strikes me about this description of Boaz is that he stands out among all the people of that day who are doing what is right in their own eyes. You know, it's one thing to walk in obedience when others around you are doing the right thing. And yet again, it's something else to be the only one who is honoring God's law. We see that Boaz blesses his workers as he arrives to, to the field. He, he wants to encourage them. He wants them to know that he cares about them. He's not the kind of man that is going to, to work them to death just so that he can get a profit out of them. And he's also obedient to God's Word in Deuteronomy 24.19 where it says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien the orphan, and the widow, 
so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. See, in the nation of Israel, there was a law, this law, that allowed for the poor or the foreigner to gather enough for them to be able to eat, enough food for their survival. You see, not everyone could own land. Not everyone could farm it. So there was no way for every single person to be able to earn a living. And so Ruth says to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain. It's a way for those who don't have property, who don't have their own business, to be able to provide for themselves. Certainly there is work involved. They would have to go behind the ones who are gathering and and to pick up all the extras. And you had to do a lot of work all day long. But see, the Lord was very concerned about those in His midst, in the midst of the people. He wanted to make sure there was an avenue, there was a way that they could provide for themselves. And so the Lord commands that His people have this as a part of the fabric of their culture. The Lord doesn't say, go and get every single scrap and take it for yourself to maximize your profits. He says, allow some to lay so that others can come in and gather. You see, in every society, there will be those who are vulnerable, those who are in need, those who need provision. And so the question for us is, is that will Boaz allow this foreigner, Ruth, the Moabite. Now remember, always in this book, it's always Ruth the Moabite. Because the author wants us to remember that she's a Moabite, not an Israelite. She's a different kind of a person, right? And we already know that Boaz is a man of standing, but how will he respond to, to a Moabite? A person that the nation of Israel despise. How will he respond to her in the field? She's got a different culture. Maybe she speaks a different language. Maybe she looks different. Maybe she acts different. What's he going to say when she's standing in his field? Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Maybe he said, Whose young woman is this? We don't really know. And the servant who was in charge of the reaper said, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Remember, she's a Moabite from Moab, in case you forgot where she's from. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning now, except for a short rest. Notice in the text that Ruth asked to be able to glean and has been doing so for the whole day stopping only to take a short rest. See, Ruth is working hard. She not only has shown Naomi the kindness of leaving her own family and going to be with her, to die where she is going to die, to take her gods upon her, to make her God her God, but now she's determined to provide for her family. She's willing to work many hours out in the sun all by herself. She takes initiative and looks for an opportunity. And she has faith in the Lord, but she's not just sitting back and saying, I'm trusting the Lord. She's actively trusting. She is looking for an opportunity to provide and to take initiative. Often, Christians fail to act with boldness because we say, I'll just wait upon the Lord. But we see that Ruth is acting in obedience and and certainly she had to be conscious of of how vulnerable she would have been as a Moabite in this other culture. And yet she knows she must do the hard work of gleaning to put food on her and Naomi's table. She's willing to take the risk. 
Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go in and glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servants, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz came to her, Come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. And here we see that Ruth is indeed Boaz is indeed a worthy man, a man of standing. Not only does he welcome Ruth into his field to glean part of the produce that he has planted, but he says to her, don't glean in another field. He wants her to stay on his own land. He, he tells the other young men, don't bother this one. Again, as a woman, she was at risk of being attacked or being harmed. And he even says to her, if you're thirsty, take a drink from our vessel. I mean, think about it. That would have saved Ruth a lot of time. She wouldn't have had to take her own vessel down to the water source and then to bring it back. She could remain there in gleaning. And Boaz is even extending this action. The Moabite. You can drink from our vessel. She would have been considered unclean by the people of God. But he elevates her. He gives her dignity. He extends compassion and kindness. She isn't just a foreigner, an alien. She is a person who is created by God, who deserves dignity. As I read through this passage, I have to ask the question of myself and of us as a people. Do we have the same attitude about the foreigner in our midst? You know, we recognize that immigration and immigrants are a part of our collective story as a nation. We are a nation of immigrants. And even now, immigration, undocumented workers, the political, economic, and cultural impact is on our minds and hearts as a nation at this time. And all throughout the Bible, we're exposed to the word for foreigner. Uh, the Hebrew word is ger. It's translated sojourner, alien, stranger and even immigrant. Essentially, an immigrant, the definition of an immigrant is a person who is born in one country, who is living in another country. And just like today, the people of the Bible had immigrants in their midst. 
And just like today, God called His people to deal justly with them. Exodus 12, 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. There was only one law, and it was the same for all people, regardless of where they were born. Deuteronomy 10, 17, 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God called them to extend hospitality to the strangers, to the immigrants in their midst. You know, often we think of hospitality as having our friends over for dinner. But in the Bible, hospitality is welcoming strangers. The word for hospitality is philozinia, which literally means love the stranger. It's one thing to love each other. It's another thing to love the stranger. A guy I knew in Tampa Bay always used to say that every church thinks it's the friendliest church in town. Because if you've known people for 30 years, you're friendly to them. The question is, are churches hospitable? Does a church welcome the stranger in their midst? You know that person that walks up on the first Sunday and is kind of doing this? Do you turn your eyes and run the other direction? Or do you walk toward them and say, I don't recognize you. I, I want to meet you. And here's the best way to do this. Because sometimes you go up to the person and you say, are you new here? And they say, no, I've been a member for 50 years. Just say, how long have you been here? And they can say five minutes or 50 years. And they'll never know that you didn't know them. How long have you been here? You know, the people determine whether or not a church is a friendly church the first five minutes after the service. Because everyone expects to get a handshake from the guy with a big greeter sign around his neck. But the people come up to you and say, welcome, we're so glad that you're here. That's a hospitable church. Do we sit in a place that would allow people to come in and get a seat? Or do we make all the new uh, people sit in the front row? Are we a hospitable church? Are we a hospitable people? Not only to the stranger who comes for the very first time, but the person living in our midst who's not from our country. Notice in the Deuteronomy passage, God wanted them to remember that they were immigrants too. They were saved from a famine by the Egyptians and they lived there in a culture that was not their own. And then they went into the promised land and they were strangers and immigrants there too. They should have known better than anybody what it was like to be an immigrant, to be vulnerable, to not understand the culture, to not understand the language. But, because people were doing what was right in their own eyes, the stranger was not being welcomed. But we see that in Ruth, that Boaz is a man of standing. He's a worthy man. And you see that the letter of the law said, allow the people to glean. But what Boaz does is he goes over and beyond. He extends more generosity, more graciousness to Ruth. He gives her more than he had to. And guess what happened? It provided for Ruth and it provided for Naomi. And that's why to me, uh, the response of people to immigration in our country is so puzzling. How many of you can trace your ancestry back and it doesn't include, it always includes people from America. 
Is there anybody in here right now whose ancestors all the way back were from America? No. You see, even Native Americans came across the Bering Strait at one point, right? We're all a nation of immigrants. There was at some point when your great-great-granddaddy came and he set foot in America for the very first time and he felt vulnerable. He may not have known the language. He may not have experienced the welcome. And according to a Pew Research study, the percentage of evangelicals that are allowing Scripture to inform their understanding the issue of immigration is, guess, 12%. 12%. Where else does a person get their view of any issue? Do we determine what we believe because we watch a particular news channel? Do we determine what we believe because we're associated with a particular political party? I mean, not only is that a disaster for our view on immigration, but it's a disaster about our belief in the authority of Scripture. I mean, if we really believe what the Bible says is true, then shouldn't it be authoritative for every area in our lives? Do we really believe the Bible? You know, people say often, well, I have a hard time with people who are here illegally. And of course, you know, we need to deal with that first before we deal with anything. But here's a question. How did those people get here? There are 12 million undocumented immigrants in our country. Half of them overstayed a visa. They came in legally, but they overstayed their visa. The other half, for the most part, crossed a border to get in here. But how? I mean, didn't really we let them in? Uh, Sandy Wilson at Second Presbyterian said that there's this, uh, and I agree, there's this uh, conspiracy uh, between people like you and me, upper middle class people, and the immigrant undocumented worker. We made a deal with them. We said, we'll let you in. Our government, represented by the people, for the people, we'll, we'll let you in because we want food on our table. I mean, every time we go to the store, every time I go to the store and I look around for the cheapest strawberries, I'm creating an incentive for people to have undocumented workers working for them. And now, when it's time for us to take responsibility, what we want to do is to say, get out. Meanwhile, it would cost us $80 billion to deport those 12 million people. And oh, by the way, according to the Wall Street Journal, 96% of economists believe that immigration, even illegal immigration, has been good for the U.S. economy. Because you see, many of those people that come in do the work that most Americans don't want to do. Did you know that 18% of Fortune 500 companies were started by immigrants? Have you ever heard of the company Google? Have you ever heard of Procter & Gamble? Have you ever heard of Goldman Sachs? Did you know that 200 of the of 500 Fortune 500 companies were started either by an immigrant or their child? The people that have come to our, com- our country are doing it for the very same reason that your ancestors came to this country. They needed opportunity. Opportunity to have a place where they could work to put food on their table. And you know, there's another reality too. Is that when immigrants come to America, they are much, much more likely to become Christians. According to some studies, immigrant churches are the fastest growing evangelical churches in the United States of America. And without immigrant, immigrant growth, some denominations in our, in our country would be dying. On the back of the sermon notes, I've put some different resources for you to understand this issue better. This is something that I have learned a lot about in recent weeks and months. 
you know, some of the things that we need to do are including hospitality to immigrants. There's also a call for an appropriate secure, uh, security of our borders and making illegal immigration more difficult. But we've also got to come up with a new mechanism that allows for lawful entry into the United States to speed up the system for those who are already in line. We need to make sure that those who are already here illegally, those with children, there's a way for them to become naturalized over time and to pay a fine for breaking the law, to begin paying taxes, to get in the system. Because you see, ultimately we have a biblical mandate to welcome the stranger. It's consistent with the history of our country. We stand to benefit from it economically. We stand to benefit from it spiritually. And we have a call by God to speak up for the weak and for the lost. I even encourage you to contact your representative to say that you want biblical, faithful, wise immigration reform in our country. Verse 17. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked with and said, The man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest another, in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. In this story, we learn that that Boaz is a close relative. He is a a redeemer. And remember, we talked about last week how significant and important it was for someone to carry on the family name. Someone to be... uh, connected to, to support, to encourage the widows in the culture. And we see that in the providence of God, Ruth just happened to find herself in the field of Boaz, who also happened to be a close relative, a redeemer. You see, what Ruth needs is a redeemer. And that's just what you and I need. We need a redeemer. We need redemption. You know, because, because of our sin, we were spiritually illegal. We had no status. We were undocumented. But through Jesus Christ, an immigrant himself, we were made legal. I mean, think about it. Jesus came from another world to live with us. On earth, he was a displaced Galilean who was born away from his people and away from his home. He fled his own country with his parents to Egypt when his life was in danger. And when he returned, he suffered under the oppression of Pilate, a servant of a foreign power. There's a story about a man named Pastor Bobby, and he serves a congregation in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, someone asked him, would you be willing to volunteer as a chaplain at the deportation center? 
It's about an hour west of Chicago. It's where people are sent when they're arrested and they're here illegally and they're getting ready to be deported back to wherever country they're from, Mexico, Colombia, uh, and Africa somewhere. And the people there are hurting. And he came up one morning at 4.45 in the morning and there was a mother who was in tears because her son Miguel was being deported. And she couldn't touch him. She couldn't talk to him. She could see him through the glass, but she was weeping. And so Bobby had an opportunity to come. He didn't know why Miguel was there, if it was for a, a traffic violation, if it was something worse. But what he could see was the pain on the mother's face. He could see the pain on Miguel's three daughters' face as their father was going to be sent back to another country. And Bobby's heart began to go out to these people because he said, I used to be, um, I grew up in a family, an Air Force family, and we were very patriotic. And I said, what we need to do is get these people to obey the law. But then I realized when I got into a relationship with people who have come here for the opportunity to work, it's just not that easy because their children are born here and they have lives here. And when we send them home, we're leaving homeless children in our, in our country. And so how do we deal with this? Are there laws that we should abide by? Absolutely. But can we make a process? Can we make a, a way that is better to allow people to come in, to work, to serve, to live, and to experience the same blessing that our ancestors and that we have experienced in a way that makes sense for our country as a whole? his heart began to change because he recognized the commitment that God had to the sojourner, to the stranger, to the immigrant in the land, making provision for them. You know, we know that we too are aliens in a strange land. And because of that, we ought to be then compassionate upon those who are among us, extending kindness to them. There are not easy solutions to this complicated and political and divisive issue. But we must be willing to look to the Bible to guide us on how we ought to think in these ways. Will we respond to the immigrant the way that Boaz did? Only when we realize how Jesus came to make us citizens of His kingdom will we be more willing to seek justice and to love the immigrants among us. Will you pray with me, please?